I was really appreciative, both services, of the kids walking us through what we believe. You know, the great, one of the great creeds of the church that's united believers over the centuries. It's really at the core of why we're here. And it is, I think, a great compliment to what we've been doing these last several weeks, where we've been looking at why we believe. We always need to remember what we believe. So I love that. Joni Erickson Tata was only 17 when she was permanently paralyzed from the shoulders down in a diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay. Over the course of two years of rehabilitation, she struggled mightily with anger and depression, thoughts of suicide, and religious doubt. She'd been a Christian before the accident, and so she really struggled, as you might imagine, with how a good and loving God could permit this to happen to her life. Well, nearly 50 years later, she's a renowned author, evangelist, radio personality, and advocate for the disabled. And I think she would be the first to say that God has worked in her in a mighty way through her disability, and he worked in a way that he wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Hear what she has to say from 2013. God was doing a deeper healing in both of us, referring to her husband, Ken, and herself. And I tell you what, we needed it, because just years later, I was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. And that's when God began squeezing the lemon even more. That's, that's her, her term for the suffering that she experiences and the way God works to change her through suffering. I remember, though, one day Ken driving me home from chemotherapy, and we started talking about how suffering is like little splashovers from hell. When you suffer, it should be your cue to remember the hell from which you were ultimately rescued by Jesus Christ. And so we just started, we're discussing this and how amazing it was that God allowed splashovers of hell in our lives to wake us up out of our spiritual slumber. And then we pulled into the driveway, he turned off the ignition, he looked at me in the rearview mirror. Well, then what do you think splashovers of heaven are? And I thought, well, are they easy, breezy days that are, that are bright where everything is going well? We discussed this. Is it times when all the bills are paid and there are no trials or tests or chronic pain? In the silence, we said, no, no, those aren't splashovers of heaven. Splashovers of heaven are finding Jesus in your splashover of hell. There's nothing more poignant. There's nothing sweeter than finding Jesus in your hell. And Ken and I are so grateful for this affliction. I know that sounds strange, but all of it, it, it helps us to stay hungry for the bread of life, to stay thirsty for the living water. And she concludes by saying, are you wondering why God hasn't removed the disappointment, why he's not given healing when you've so desperately asked for it? Well, you know what? God may remove your healing, your suffering, sorry, and that will be a great cause of praise. But if not, he will use it. He will use anything and everything that stands in the way of his fellowship with you. So let God mold you and make you and transform you from glory to glory. That's the deeper healing. Well, today we're continuing our series on the seven signs of the Savior, the the miracles that John recorded so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing we would have eternal life in his name. That was pointed out to me, or was asked last week, how come there's only six things on your signboard when there's seven signs? I said, the cross is the great sign. We'll talk about that at Easter. I'm getting excited about Easter. I started working on that this week, so I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully, hopefully you will be too. What we're going to see today in this sign is a man who found Jesus in the midst of his own personal hell. A hell of poverty and shame and misery that he lived in because he had been born blind. This man will receive healing. But both his healing and his lifetime of suffering were both, they were for the purpose of demonstrating the work of God in his life. To be a sign to all of us pointing to Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. So turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I do have the passage all up on the screen, but as we move through the points, you may want to be able to refer back to the text. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now, this sign takes place in Jerusalem at a time when people are they're beginning to seriously consider that Jesus might be the Christ, based on all the many things that he's been working, all the many miracles he's been doing, all the things he's been saying. Yet at the same time, the opposition to him is growing. The Pharisees want to kill him. So it's sort of at a pivotal moment, Right? The controversy had reached new heights in chapter 8, immediately before these verses, because he had said he's the light of the world. He had said that God is his Father. And then he used the name of God, I Am, to describe himself. We see what happens at the very end of chapter 8. They pick up rocks to stone him, but he walks away because it's not yet time for them to kill him. And then he sees a man who's been blind from birth. And his disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we think this is like the worst question you can possibly ask, right? I mean, we would never think to ask this question, I hope, in our culture. But but he's really, the disciples are expressing the prevailing view of the time, which is that if you had a disability, it was a punishment from God that you were cursed by God for some sin that you'd either committed in utero, right? They actually believed theologically that you could sin while you were in the womb. Or it was a sin committed by the parents that was being punished through the blindness of the child. Right, so this poor beggar, and we know he's a beggar if you read later on because there's really no work he can do when he's blind, so that's what they believed. That's the sin and the shame, or the shame, rather, that he'd had to live with his whole life. 
Well, in verse 3, Jesus answers him, them in a most unexpected way. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus rejects their simplistic reasoning and explains that this man's suffering is a result, really, of the, way, the fact that God had a plan for him, that he was going to demonstrate his power through him. And that's, that's kind of hard for us to hear, right? That, that God was going to use this suffering, that, that that was the purpose of his life, was to be revealed, to be revealing God's activity. But it is a true statement. As hard, as unfair as it seems, it is also the truth that God had this greater purpose. And it is one that has transcended the centuries. We're talking about this man 2,000 years later. And his suffering was a part of that plan, just as it was, as it is now for Joni Erickson Tata. Well, having straightened the disciples out on this matter, verses 4 and 5, we see Jesus emphasize that the miracles he's working and the, the teaching that he's doing are the works of God, the one who had sent him, and that he has to do them while he's in the world, meaning until he is crucified until he ascends, and he reiterates that he is the light of the world. And we're going to explore these two dimensions, the works of God and the light of the world, in just a moment. But before we do, we should see that Jesus now sets to work healing this man. He, he spits, he makes mud, he anoints the man's eyes, and he sends him off to wash. And verse 7 concludes by saying, So he went and washed, and came back seeing. And this is a fact that is repeatedly verified throughout the rest of chapter 9. We don't have time to discuss all of chapter 9. I wish we had an extra hour. I mean, I guess it's late service. We could, but I'm not sure how appreciated that would be. I might be sure how appreciated it would be. But I would urge you to read it, because what we're going to see here is that the Pharisees are amazed and really, really angry about this Sabbath day healing. And so they conduct an extensive interview. Right? The neighbors are like, hey, this guy can see all of a sudden. So they tell the Pharisees. The Pharisees check with the parents, like, hey, has this guy been blind this whole time? Because he can see. You might have noticed. The parents say, yeah, he's our son. He was blind the whole time, and we're not telling you anything else because we're getting out of this. So then they question the man back and forth, back and forth a couple times. And he's like, yeah, I was blind, now I see. And anyway, it's a great story. There can be no doubt that this man who's been blind from the day he was born can now see. There is no argument about this. They're just upset about how it happened. And so I would encourage you to read it this week, because it it's a great story. It's, it's theologically deep, but it's also pretty funny, because the Pharisees get increasingly blind as the story goes on, and the blind man sees increasingly clearly. At one point, he's basically making fun of the Pharisees, and then they excommunicate him. But all's well that ends well, because he comes to faith in Christ. So having seen the sign itself, I must ask our customary question for this series, right? If this is a sign, and every sign has a purpose, what does this sign point to? And I believe that in a very careful way that John has written this passage, that this sign points to 
exactly the reasons he wrote his gospel in the first place. Specifically, it shows us that Jesus is the light of the world, which points to his identity as the Christ, and that Jesus does the works of God, which points to his identity as the Son of God. Remember, those are two of the things that John gives as his reasons for writing the gospel. So let's take a look at each of these in a little more depth. First, the sign points to the truth of verse 5, that Jesus is the light of the world. As you read the Gospel of John, as you read his letters, you see he talks about light and darkness and day and night and sight and blindness a lot. It is a recurring image of his Gospel. And light is always associated with goodness and salvation in God while darkness is invariably associated with evil and lostness and sin. Jesus has testified in chapter 8 that he is the light of the world, and he repeats it immediately before he heals this blind man. It is the last thing he says before healing the man. And this helps us, I think, understand the significance of this sign, because the sign is illustrating the greater truth that Jesus is the light of the world. Because in this sign, what does he do? He literally gives light, right, sight, to a man who has only known darkness for his entire life. And it points to that greater truth that Jesus gives the spiritual light of godliness and holiness and hope and truth to everyone who's living in the darkness of godlessness and hopelessness and sin and death. And this idea of being the light of the world is central to our understanding of who Jesus is. Because more than 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had repeatedly described the Messiah as being the light. Let me give you two examples. Isaiah 9.2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Then Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 says to the Messiah, I will give you as a covenant for the people, right, we've heard that word before, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Note those last two verses. We see that same combination of light and giving sight to the blind that we see in this sign that we're talking about today, light and sight. So this sign is pointing backwards 700 years to prophecy that proves this critical truth that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, the word Messiah, we've talked about it at the Christmas season, we talk about it a lot then, is a Hebrew word meaning anointed, right? Which is what you did for a king to signify that they were the rightful king per God's will. He is the anointed and rightful eternal king of Israel. When you translate Messiah into Greek, the word becomes Christos, Christ. Remember why John recorded these signs? So that we would believe Jesus is the Christ. Isaiah describes more of the amazing things that the Christ will do in Isaiah 35. And he he lists several, but among them are, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, 
And shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. As Jesus does these signs, as he is the light of the world, we see that he is indeed the Messiah, the Christ. Right? The sign we're talking about today, it's the first one from that list. He opens the sight of the blind. Three weeks ago, now Radcliffe talked about a lame man who Jesus made able to walk and presumably leap like a deer if he wanted after 38 years. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we see Jesus give hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute. And so without a doubt, these are all signs of the Messiah. And, and in fact, no less a luminary of church history than John the Baptist experienced a time of doubt. So the encouraging thing for us is when we do experience doubt, we're not alone. If John the Baptist, a guy who had firsthand experience with Jesus Christ, who, who heard the voice of God, who saw the Spirit come down like a dove, can have doubt, we can have doubt. And so he sent his, his followers to ask Jesus, are you really the guy? Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus answered by pointing to these verses and to the signs he was doing. And that satisfied John the Baptist. And just as he was the light for people then, Jesus the Christ is the light of the world for us today. As our Messiah, he brings us out of the darkness of ignorance and sin and death and into the light of the presence of God. And in turn, we are called to be the light of the world. We, the church, are called to carry on that work, to be his instruments of reaching the communities around us with the news of the Messiah and help do the work of God to bring them into the light. Christ moves us from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight, and as he does so, this passage reveals a second truth about his identity, the identity of Jesus, the Christ. See, this sign demonstrates exactly what Jesus means in verses 3 and 4 when he refers to the works of God. See, Jesus said that this poor man was blind so that the works of God could be demonstrated in him. And then what did Jesus immediately do after he said that? He healed him. Right? He's directly linked his miracle of healing with the work of God. And by extension, if Jesus is doing the works of God, what's he saying about himself? That he's God. Right? He is testifying to his identity through his actions. And if we step back a moment and we look at all the signs we've looked at so far in this series, they're all works of God, aren't they? Right? Jesus turned ordinary water into extraordinary wine, demonstrating this power over nature. Now, we didn't talk about it then, but there is an Old Testament parallel to this action, right? It's in the Exodus when Aaron raises his staff over the water and the water is transformed into blood. But Aaron doesn't do that on his own power. It's very clear that is an act of God. At Cana of Galilee, Jesus turned water into symbolic blood. We did talk about that. He did it by his power, his own power, the power of God. When he returned to Cana sometime later and he healed a dying boy from a great distance 
And he didn't have to go see him, and he didn't have to go touch him, he didn't have to be near him. He did it by his own power, the power of God. At the pool of Bethesda, Jesus healed an invalid after 38 years of suffering, and he did it with a single command. And the interesting thing is that the people who were sick would gather at this pool so that occasionally if the water was stirred, the first one in the pool could get a little touch of the power of God and be healed. Jesus didn't need that. He did it on his own power, the power of God. When Jesus had a group of Israelites out in the wilderness, just like Moses did in the wilderness, and they needed food, they didn't need God to provide manna because Jesus could make the food himself with his own power, the power of God. And then we come to the miracle we're talking about today. Jesus restored sight to the blind several times in the Gospels, and so I think it's easy for us to think that's kind of a routine thing. I mean, for us, that's maybe not the biggest deal, like bread's more impressive maybe, or, you know, resurrection. But we need to understand it is a big deal because healing the blind is a miracle that is utterly without parallel in the Old Testament or in Jewish historical literature, right? I could be off on this, but I'm pretty confident that more people were raised from the dead in the Old Testament than received sight. Moreover, there is no record either in the Bible or in Jewish tradition and history of anyone ever receiving sight when they had been born blind. That's why the man in verse 32, right, if you read the rest of chapter 9, you'll see this, he tells the Pharisees, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This is a point, it is possibly the only point, that the Pharisees don't argue. Right? They argue with him about everything and try and make him feel terrible about everything. But they don't argue with this point. Jesus has done something here that no one has ever done before. No healer, no miracle worker, no prophet. And he did it by his own power, the power of God. And so all these signs point very clearly to one thing. Jesus is the unique Son of God, and He is God Himself. That's why the Pharisees are so upset, and in particular why they are so upset about this miracle. Right? This was a miracle that, that they can't explain away. It's also why each of these signs or almost all of them anyway, end with a statement of belief where the recipient or a witness has come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Today's miracle, that comes in verse 38. The man says, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. But why does that matter to us? Why is it important to us that we know that Jesus is the Son of God? I mean, it is clearly important to us because that's why John wrote his gospel was to make sure everyone throughout the centuries could know that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. 
Well, the reason it's so important is quite simply because of the cross. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Because up until that moment, the Jews had been able to rely on and receive forgiveness on a sin-by-sin basis. They would sacrifice an innocent animal. They'd take it to the temple, cut its throat, and the blood would atone for their personal failing, for their family sin, for their societal sin. But every animal was limited. It was finite. It's just an animal. It could only cover the sins that had taken place to that point. But if Jesus is the Son of God, right? if he is the incarnate God himself, perfect and holy, then his willing sacrifice on the cross is unlimited. Its power is infinite. He was perfectly innocent, and so he can cover literally every sin of the world, both now and forevermore. Your sin and my sin. And that's good news. As the writer of Hebrews said, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Or as John wrote in his first letter, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So our sins can be forgiven, no matter how heinous or shameful or pathetic or terrible they might be. No matter how long we've carried them, no matter how long we've committed them, no matter how long we've beat ourselves up about them. All we have to do is ask for and accept that forgiveness. It does not require hard work. It does not require us to perform certain rituals some number of times a day or a week. It is not based on how, how good we answer questions in Sunday school. It is not based on us being punished. It's not based on us having perfect behavior at all times. All we have to do is believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, that he died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And in doing this, when we ask for and receive forgiveness, we receive eternal life. We are forever made worthy to be in the presence of the Lord. Not because we're good, not because of good behavior at work or school or in the family or anywhere else, but because of his perfect goodness poured out for us. As Paul told the Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's eternal life. That's the third reason John wrote his gospel, right? So that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that we would believe he's the Son of God, and that in believing, we would have life in his name. As we know these signs, as we believe these signs, as we understand what they testify to, 
We see this is a matter of spiritual life and death for each and every one of us and for everyone that we know and love. And so the question is, do you believe? Do they believe? See, in these signs we see the works of God being done by the perfect God-man, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And because he is that perfect Son of God, his perfect sacrifice on the cross, the one that we're going to commemorate in just a few minutes as we observe the Lord's Supper, is more than sufficient to wash each and every one of us clean of all the filth we manage to get on ourselves each and every time we need it. And all we have to do is believe what these signs are saying and ask for forgiveness from God. As John wrote in his letter to believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? There is no pit we can get ourselves into where he will not pull us back out when we turn to him and ask for forgiveness. And the beauty is, right, this isn't just some one-time cleansing that's, that's only good to a point like the Old Testament sacrifices. There are days where we're going to sin and fall short. We're going to mess up. It's a guarantee. But we can always stand back up, dust ourselves off, and humbly come before the Lord and ask His forgiveness. And we can have the confidence that He will give it. Because Jesus the Christ has us covered. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the love you showed us by sending your Son into this world. Lord, we are grateful for these signs so that we may know and believe and have confidence that Jesus is the Christ. Lord, we are grateful for his great sacrifice, and we ask that you would forgive our sins. If there's any here who have not yet turned to Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you would call on them and that they would respond in faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We prepare now to come to the Lord's table and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. To remember that painful and perfect sacrifice on the cross that Jesus made for us. So as we remember his willing death, his, his body broken and his blood poured out, we stand grateful for salvation and the eternal life that it made possible. Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves before we observe the Lord's Supper. To make sure we eat the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner. So I would urge you to use these next few moments to examine yourself and your heart. And if you find sin or bitterness or unforgiveness or anger or any of their ugly little friends, confess those things to God and receive the forgiveness that he so richly desires to give.